Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Paul Bunch, your guest host for today. I am a pediatrician in the Cincinnati area, and I'm excited to be here for today's discussion. A common visit in my office is an older school-aged child or a teenager who passed out. The evaluation can take many different paths, and for this reason, today we will consult Dr. Jeff Anderson on syncope. Welcome, Dr. Anderson. Thanks. Good to be here with you, Paul. Great. Um, so I'd like to start by helping the listeners get to know you a little bit. So first of all, how long have you been practicing? Yeah, so I um, came to Cincinnati Children's in 2006 for cardiology fellowship. So I'm a cardiologist here and stayed here. Uh, so in practice after training since 2010. Okay. And are there any areas in cardiology that you would say are particular focuses for you? Yeah, so I did a, a electrophysiology uh, advanced fellowship for a year after my cardiology training. So I have some expertise in electrophysiology, but also started as my fellowship ended a syncope clinic. Excellent. And is there anything outside of the hospital that you think is a particular interest, hobbies or things you like to do to spend your free time? Well, I have a, a relatively large family of four daughters, uh, so spend a lot of time with them and uh, their activities. Also love to run and read. Great. Well, our conversation today is on syncope. Um, if you could, could you share a quick overview of syncope and any data or incidents about how often a general pediatrician may come across this in their office? You bet. So I think as most of you know and have experienced, syncope is a common problem in children and teens. Um, the data would tell us that one in five children or teenagers will have an episode of syncope in the first 20 years of life. So re relatively common. Um, and most pediatric loss of consciousness events are caused by neurocardiogenic syncope or neurally mediated hypotension. Um, and if you look even at the patients over years that have been sent to our syncope clinic, so these are the tip of the iceberg, because uh, you, you all out there in the community manage most of these patients. But if you look at the ones who are referred to us, 93% of them have this diagnosis. So 93% have neurocardiogenic syncope. Okay. So when this patient shows up in our office, um, what would you suggest would be a good place to start with the history? What are the important questions you think we should be asking, pertinent exam or um, vital signs we should be definitely ch checking? Any starting points? Yeah, well, you said, it, uh, you said it with the question. The most important information that you can gather about this <clears throat> patient is the history. So what was happening when the patient passed out? What, were the situ what was the situation? Uh, what was the environment? Um, how long did it last? Uh, were there any other um, findings or uh, symptoms that happened before they passed out, after they passed out? How long were they out? Um, all important questions uh, about the history. Okay. And if you go on to the exam, I think the most important parts of the exam would be their cardiac exam and their neurologic exam. If those are both um, grossly normal, um, those are real reassuring that there's not something else going on. Okay. And I would say most of the time that I do this exam, the, the exam is normal. Um, what specific findings would you be, would get your attention? Would you be most worried about? Yeah. Um, so it might first be worth explaining what does neurocardiogenic syncope typically look like, and then can talk a little bit about the red flags for other things that we would worry about. Um, most neurocardiogenic syncope follows a 
a specific pattern. It's associated with um, position changes, with hot environments, um, with uh, dizziness that precedes the passing out or lightheadedness. Some patients will complain of feeling nauseated, some with vision changes, tunnel vision, blackness to their vision before ultimately losing consciousness. And the losing consciousness event is typically brief. Um, syncope, as defined, is a brief loss of consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, so typically lasts less than 30 seconds to a minute. Patients will then recover and will um, have uh, maybe a little tiredness after, but no, none of the confusion that you might see with a, a seizure, um, none of that uh, sort of disorientation. Um, there are, it's pretty common to have um, other findings with syncope, even findings that may start to make you feel a little bit more uncomfortable that this is just a syncopal event. But for example, over half of patients who experience syncope will have some stiffness of their arms uh, or jerking movements of their extremities. It's common with syncope um, and doesn't necessarily mean that they've had, had a seizure, for example. Um, the red flags that we think about, um, I think, are in the cardiology realm and then the, the neurologic realm. So when we think about red flags and the questions that are important to ask with the history, um, first would be uh, syncope that's happening during exercise. So uh, especially during the middle of exercise. Um, neurocardiogenic syncope can be common in between exercise. So a lot of athletes train with sprinting drills, or if you think of a cross-country runner that's pushing themselves and then is in the shoot at the end of the race, those times between exercises are common times when the blood pressure might drop precipitously and cause those symptoms and even syncope. But passing out in the middle of exercise is for sure a red flag. Uh, passing out that is preceded by no warning so again, neurocardiogenic syncope is typically preceded by some warning signs, some, some dizziness, lightheadedness, visual changes. Um, it raises my uh, ears a little bit to hear someone who's passed out with no uh, symptoms at all. If the syncope is preceded by other cardiac symptoms like chest pain or palpitations, that would be a red flag. Um, if you think about... Um, neurologic findings, as, as I've worked with a neurologist for years in the syncope clinic, he's taught me that if a patient has focal uh, movement or jerking of an arm or other extremity prior to the syncopal event, that is a red flag for uh, neurologic cause of the loss of consciousness. Um, in the event itself, um, someone who has uh, focal or urinary incontinence starts to make us think that there may be something there, although it is actually relatively common for someone to have urinary incontinence with a syncopal event, uh, but still would raise my uh, ears a little bit. Um, I, we talked about the post-syncopal, uh, maybe tiredness, but any post-syncopal post or post-event confusion or incoherence that lasts longer than 15 minutes uh, would be concerning. Um, and so those are the those are some of the red flags that um, should make you think a little bit more about the event, and are also good reasons to start thinking about potentially getting a subspecialist involved in the evaluation.
Does duration of the event have any implication on red flag or not? Whether it's a few seconds or 30 seconds to a minute? Yeah, I would say anything under a minute uh, would not worry me as, uh, as it being something other than neurocardiogenic syncope. If it's longer than that, then it's unlikely a blood pressure problem. Um, so again, the, the physiology that's leading to the event is that the blood pressure is dropping too low. The brain doesn't like that. You start to have symptoms. And so the body uh, and the brain take control. You pass out and now you're flat when you're, where your blood pressure isn't need to be as high. So should lead to a pretty quick recovery if that's the etiology. Okay. And if a kid has had one episode of syncope, do, do we know anything about recurrence rates? Like if you've had one episode, does that raise your risk? If you've had a certain number of episodes, does that make you just more likely to pass out at times? Yeah, it, it sort of depends on the, I would say, on the, um, the story and the situation. So uh, some uh, teenagers are prone to this, I think, in my experience. Some teenagers through the hormone shifts of, of adolescence have more of a predilection toward having low blood pressure episodes. Those patients have a story that is not only I had a syncopal event, but I get dizzy relatively frequently when I change position, even if I don't have passing out with those episodes. There's also a whole other set of neurocardiogenic syncope patients that have what are more reflex episodes. So they're related to an event. Um, sometimes a painful stimulus, interestingly, will lead to a, a low blood pressure and loss of consciousness. Um, I've had patients who you know, stubbed their toe, got real dizzy, passed out. You guys have probably all experienced patients who got their immunizations of course. And, and got dizzy and passed out. Um, uh, probably every six months, we'll see a patient who passed out during hair combing. So there's okay. a there's an entity called hair combing syncope, uh, where the story is always the same. Mom was brushing her hair or his hair, and got dizzy and passed out. Um, I've had patients every once in a while who have stretch associated syncope. So big deep stretches, uh, got dizzy, passed out. Um, and then there's an entity called mictration syncope hmm. that's associated with going to the bathroom. So those reflex episodes, I don't think necessarily come with a lot of recurrence because if you're avoiding the stimulus that's led to the syncope, you know, you, you may not pass out. But the ones that have uh, symptoms otherwise who are dizzy frequently with position changes, I think are more at risk for having recurrent episodes okay i've never had a case of hairbrushing syncope or micturation micturation syncope in my <laughs> 11 years but that's a, a good one to put in my back pocket just in case um as far as the physical exam you know a general physical exam um you know basic neurologic exam a, a, a cardiorespiratory exam of course what role do orthostatic vital signs play in our in-office evaluation if any yeah, great question, and you may get different answers depending on who you ask this question to. I, I mentioned that we had started a syncope clinic uh, now 13 years ago, and for several years we did orthostatic vital signs on everybody who came into clinic. In, in the case of evaluating for a syncopal event, I think there's actually 
pretty low yield to doing orthostatic vital signs. Um, in someone who's got dizziness all the time and it's not really a syncopal event you're uh, evaluating, there may be a little more value there. But for looking for reasons for passing out, I think there's pretty low yield. Um, it's really unusual to do orthostatic vital signs in a teenager who's otherwise healthy and see a big drop in blood pressure when you stand up. So uh, they're not harming to do for sure, but they won't give you a lot of information. Uh, again, the story and the lack of red flags are the things that are going to lead you to that diagnosis. Okay, great. Thank you. So if they have any of the red flag symptoms, I would assume that the next step is to refer to your local cardiologist or syncope clinic. Or yeah, I, I think so. And, and one thing I'll say, uh, well, a couple things about referring. Number one, uh, the syncope clinic definitely has limitations to the number of patients that are able to get in. But I wouldn't uh, worry about a patient getting into that clinic versus cardiology, for example. Um, either one, they're going to get a good evaluation. Um, the other thing I will mention is that this is a really good use of the e-consult system or direct messaging system that Children's has set up um, where questions can be asked uh, prior to even a visit. Um, if you have just a couple questions you're not sure about referral, really good use of that e-consult system uh, to see if there's anything else that needs to be done before a referral or if referral um, will be helpful. Okay, great. And thankfully, most of the patients that I see in the office do not have any red flag symptoms. So outside of the thorough history and physical exam, are there any labs or evaluations that you do recommend? And then I'll next ask you about ones you would not recommend first line. Yeah, I think, again, may get different answers to this question. I'm a cardiologist, uh, so there are definitely things that you might see on an EKG uh, that would help uh, diagnose cardiac problems, even in someone who's had a neurocardiogenic event. I don't think with a classic story of neuro neurocardiogenic syncope, there's necessarily any need for any additional testing. The but I would put on there is that an EKG is relatively uh, uncostly and low risk and not harmful to the patient, and you may find things. And if you look at the recommendations from, say, the American Heart Association or the European Cardiology Society, even though those are focused on adults, even for healthy adults who have one episode of syncope, they recommend an EKG as part of that workup. So I'd leave that up to you, but that wouldn't be an unreasonable thing to do in almost anyone who had an episode of syncope. I don't think there really are any other labs or testing in the, that straightforward story that would help you with the the diagnosis and treatment though. Okay. And I'm sure as patients present to your clinic, you see them coming in with lots of labs that have been done already. Is there anything you would specifically recommend against us getting as a primary care physician and leaving that to the specialist to decide? Um, actually, no, I would say that's pretty uncommon that, that I see a lot of workup done before they come in. Uh, the exception is if they go to the ER and so the ER will perform some tests that, that, uh, you know, may or may not be helpful, but on the primary care side, I don't, I don't see a lot of testing that's done. Um, I will say that a test that we get asked about a lot that's not uh, 
not done before they come to us is a tilt table test. So a tilt table test is a test that's, I think, used relatively commonly in adult medicine for patients who passed out or have recurrent passing out. Um, it, the data would tell us that that test in healthy adolescents is also not that helpful in coming to a diagnosis for, for a number of reasons. So we don't do those very often at all here at Children's, although we have the capability to do them. Okay. And before we move on to management, any other pearls of our initial evaluation that you'd like to share with the listeners? Um, you know, the only thing we didn't talk about was uh, family history. Oh, yeah. And I would say one thing that uh, doesn't surprise me anymore but did surprise me before was when you start asking a little bit about family history and about whether the, the patient's parents had experienced this before when they were younger, or does anyone in the family have low blood pressure, it's pretty common that one of those things is true. Um, and so, uh, you know, either mom or dad had the same symptoms when they were younger, or mom's always been told that her blood pressure is on the lowish side. So, so that's, um, th- that's one thing that, uh, you know, worth asking about, but not, but wouldn't be too surprised if you, if you uh, hear. I guess the other thing I always ask about um, is, are they going through a growth spurt right now? Um, again, this is a, just a little anecdotal. I don't know that I've read this in the literature, but it seems that it's not that uncommon that during a growth spurt, there's more dizziness and more predilection towards having a syncopal episode. And for girls during their menstrual cycle, that can be a time when they're experiencing more dizziness, potentially setting them up for more uh, episodes of syncope. Okay. Oh, and one more question on the initial evaluation. Is there an age under which you might have more suspicion or more of a, of a mild red flag, like yeah. below age seven, below yeah. age five? Is there for, an for, atypical yeah, age? It, we do see... We do see neurocardiogenic syncope at younger ages. You know, I would say it becomes much, to me, much less common below eight or so. Um, if someone comes to see me and they're less than eight, even if their story is uh, pretty classic, I will do more testing on that patient. So I often will get an echocardiogram just to be certain of normal anatomy. Um, so. Yes, definitely. It doesn't mean they don't have it, but it, de- it for me, raises a, a bit of a red flag when they're younger than, you know, eight or eight or seven. Okay, great. Thank you. And so if we've gone through our evaluation, you know, in our office, the there's no red flag symptoms, the history and the exam are reassuring. Um, what would you say our first line intervention should be or could be? Yeah, a couple things. One is reassurance. Um, you know, I think uh, this is a scary thing to go through for for many families. If you've sure. ever witnessed someone passing out, it's not, it's scary, right? There's a lot of, they turn pale and they, uh, it can be scary as a parent. Um, so reassurance and explaining the physiology, what's going on so that they um, can walk away, you know, feeling a bit more comfortable that nothing dangerous is going on. Um, I think the treatment uh, sort of, again, depends on the, the story. So if, they are, if they've had reflex syncope, if they've had situational syncope because of hair combing, because of a painful stimulus, because of 
um, uh, something specific, then most of the uh, discussion is about avoiding that thing. Or if it happened with immunizations, lying down when you get your immunization, you know, setting yourself up for not having another episode. If they are someone who is uh, having episodes more frequently, the dizziness more often, then you, we really have three lines or three things that are the foundation of treatment. One is, is good hydration and, and messaging that this isn't because you are dehydrated. I think when someone shows up in the ER with an episode like this, the message that they sometimes get is, well, you're just dehydrated, so that's why this happened. It's not really that they're dehydrated. Their physiology right now is set up for them to have these low blood pressure episodes. What the hydration does is it keeps their blood volume a little more elevated so that those dips in blood pressure aren't as severe. Along with the water, um, which we try to get people to shoot for 80 to 100 ounces of fluid a day. And again, depending on how much of a problem this is for them in their life, will depend on how aggressive they want to be with this. And, and I sort of tell them that, that, look, I'm going to give you some recommendations. If you're able to manage this uh, without being so aggressive with hydration, then go for it. But this is stuff that's going to help. Um, so hydration, along with hydration, is salt, salty foods. Um, I don't uh, recommend people take salt tablets or those kind of things because I think those are hard and they, they don't sit well with people's stomachs. And uh, probably not necessary, but having salty snacks, choosing salty snacks instead of um, non-salty snacks. Uh, talking to the family about what their diet is at home. You know, Every once in a while you run into a family that's trying to avoid salt at home. Mm -hmm for parental reasons and telling them it's okay for um, you to uh, salt your food at home even though your parents are avoiding it. Yeah, that's one of the best received pieces of advice I usually give is, hey, you can have a salty snack. Take yeah. a bag of chips or a bag of pretzels. Um, yeah. That along with popsicles for sore throats are some of the right. things kids love to hear. You mean I get to do this? Right. So yeah, that's, that's really well received and can be very helpful. Yeah, and then the third leg of that is is exercise. So, uh, and you find I think these patients fall into generally two classes. One is people who are not real active, people who are um, deconditioned a bit. For them, getting more conditioned I think helps with the physiology here. The more muscle strength, better venous return kind of physiology. But you also have a group that is really highly trained athletes. So that the Cross-country runners are a great example of this, and they are um, obviously don't need to exercise more. Um, uh, and some of the other treatment recommendations will be more important to them, but they they fall in a physiology where I think as highly trained athletes, their vagal tone is higher than others, and so they sort of sit there with their blood pressure kind of on the lower side at times and more predisposed to this drop. Um, but for those that are deconditioned, exercise is important. And then along with the treatment, and, and just as important, maybe more, is them understanding their own bodies and avoiding the triggers, as I said before, but avoid when they have the um, pre-syncope symptoms responding. So I start to feel dizzy, you know, you need to sit down or lie down um, rather than 
just push through and ignore those. And in my experience, when you combine the recommendations to sit or lie down with the, a little better hydration and change in, in diet, um, most kids do really well. Um, I also tell them there are a couple things that, uh, in my experience, don't cause you to pass out, but they do predispose you to an episode. And those, to, to me, in my experience, are poor sleep at night, so poor sleep hygiene. So if I stay up all night and sleep for three hours, the next day you may be more likely to experience these symptoms. And two, uh, skipping meals. So low blood sugar, lowish blood sugar doesn't cause you to pass out, but makes it more likely that you're going to have your symptoms. So always talk a little bit about sleep hygiene and um, eating throughout the day. And I'll say in the office when I'm talking to kids about drinking more water, you know, I feel like the parents always in the corner nodding their head and saying, I tell them they need to drink more. Do you have any practical tips to how to get kids to hit that 80 to 100 ounces a day target? Because that's a that's a pretty good high target to hit. Well, it is. Anyone who's who's tried that, who's listening, knows that it's not it's not easy. And um, so, you know, one is just what I said before. It's a good guideline, but it's not you know, everyone's a little bit different. So you may have a patient who's drinking none every day, no water, and getting them to 60 ounces is a big lift, but it, but it may be enough. Um, as far as tricks for getting them to uh, the, that amount, one is you really, they really do need a standard uh, drinking tool, right? If they tell you that they drink a lot because they stop by the drinking fountain four times a day and there's no way to quantify it, then it doesn't count. Um, so getting, making sure they have a water bottle that they can know how many times do I need to drink this that, so that my goal is pretty clear. Um, and then we've used things like uh, uh, charts for them to mark the number of water bottles, um, you know, reminded them ways that they can keep track with their phone, with, you know, goal apps. Um, you can go back to using stickers, sticker charts for the teenagers, which they think is kind of funny. Uh, but I think most importantly is just a way for them to quantify what that, what that really means. Okay. And if a patient's not getting the response that they want, they continue to have episodes, uh, is there any role for prescription medications in the primary care setting? Sure. Um, you know, it's un not too common, but, but it is common enough that, uh, Despite efforts like hydration and uh, salty foods and exercise, there are a few patients who continue to experience um, more often dizziness than syncope, but they're on the same in the same category, right? Like I said, if patients are willing to respond when they start to get dizzy, they're much less likely to pass out. But you still may have patients who are experiencing that. I get dizzy every time I stand up. I get dizzy, you know, at the end of cross-country meets, you know, and that does impact their quality of life. So for those patients, um, there are a couple of medications that we will use that I actually think are very safe and would be very reasonably uh, trialed in a primary care office, though I wouldn't say you should uh, feel like you don't need to talk to a cardiologist or refer, you should refer whenever you um, feel like you want an additional help. But just to say that these meds are, I think, pretty safe and, and you should feel comfortable if you want to try them. 
Um, there are two. One is uh, fluid recortisone or Florinef. Florinef is a mineralocorticoid, and its role physiologically is to expand the blood volume. So it tells the body to hold on to its natural salts. The fluid that you're drinking then follows the salts and expands your blood volume. That medicine is a medicine that, that can be uh, given once or twice a day. It typically takes some time for it to get to effectiveness, so it's not a med that's going to work day one, but you kind of have to give it a few weeks of a trial. Not a lot of side effects from this medication. Um, there are there can be some hypokalemia that has been reported from this medicine, but if I've never followed potassium levels on uh, this medicine, though other people do, I do recommend you know patients are eating a healthy um, you know fruits and vegetables kind of diet, uh, and I review that with them, but I don't typically follow potassium levels, for example. The second medication that could be trialed um, is mitodrin. And mitodrin is a medication that actually works on the blood vessels themselves to constrict the smaller blood vessels and therefore raises the blood pressure in that way. Uh, mitodrin, if you look at trials of patients who have dizziness and syncope, mitodrin's a little better on the whole, meaning if you tried everybody on these uh, in a randomized trial, mitodrine will come up a little bit better, uh, but not much. Um, but it's got, uh, the problem with, with mitodrine to me is it's a little harder to administer. So it works for about three or four hours. So if you take a dose, um, you can expect impact for the next three or four hours, and then you have to redose. So some patients, if they want to have effect through the course of a whole day, have to take it three or four times during the day, which is a little bit harder to do. The upside to mitodrine is it works nearly immediately. So a two-week trial of mitodrine, if they're having symptoms pretty frequently, will tell you pretty quickly whether it's a good medicine. The one thing I would say about both of these is that um, I, I, the way I use these is in a trial fashion. So um, you have to understand how often they're having symptoms to set your trial period, right? If they're having symptoms once every three months, well, they probably don't need a medicine, but you wouldn't want to trial it for a month, for example. Uh, but I always talk to the families about, we're going to try this for one month or two months, and if we don't see any effect, we're just going to come off this medicine. Uh, because I think some of these patients can end up seeing a number of different people and end up on multiple medicines, and that doesn't, doesn't help. So, okay. And if, if a patient comes to your office for pre-syncope or a near syncopal episode, but never actually lost consciousness, does that change your approach at all? Uh, not really. It, to me, it's again, it's on the same spectrum. If the story fits, even if they didn't fully pass out, it's likely neurocardiogenic. And so you uh, we're giving them the same, the same advice. Okay, great. And then I think we'll finish with some, um, uh, basic first aid or first response. So what advice can we give to parents if they see their child pass out? Or when they come in for that first visit, what advice should we give them for the time it might happen again? Oh, great question. I think describing what the event, have them describe what the event looked like, describing what a typical um, neurocardiogenic syncopal event looks like that includes all the scary things like pallor and maybe some twitching, um, so they know this is what we expect to see. Um, 
just basic uh, first aid. So going to them, feeling their pulse, make sure their pulse is there. You know, the things that you would have anybody do for someone who has, has collapsed. I think if they um, did, if they wake up within a minute, if they kind of are getting back to themselves, that it's okay to uh, give your office a call or if they've seen us to call us and report on what's happened rather than taking them into the emergency room, for example. Um, so communicating that um, with their primary care doctor or their, their physician. Uh, and the same goes true with the school, although it's harder in that, um, you know, we'll often have patients who were brought to the emergency room who had an event like this at school. And if there's someone who's predisposed to this, trying to avoid uh, the, the, everything that goes with an ambulance uh, call to the school and a, and a ride to the school or a ride to the emergency department is uh, reasonable to try to avoid. Thank you, Dr. Anderson, for a great discussion today. Lots of good practical tips to take back to my office. Um, I think our listeners learned a lot. I'd like to remind our listeners that today's episode is available for CME credit. You can find a link to the CME in the, descrip the description in the podcast app. And we look forward to joining you next time on the Pediatric Consult.